Luke chapter 23, starting with verse 38. And although verse 38 is not directly related to what I'm about to read, I want to read it anyway because, well, it's true of Jesus. Luke 23, verse 38, and an inscription also is written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, the three dominant languages of that area, uh, Greek, the dominant language of the Roman world at that time, Latin and Hebrew, of course, Hebrew, the language of those that are Jewish there. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, do you not even fear God? seeing you are under the same condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And Jesus said to him, uh, then he said to Jesus, I'm sorry, then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Can you imagine Jesus saying that to you? What a promise. We're going to look at two scenes this morning. We'll look at this scene, and we'll look at one scene at the cross and one scene at the tomb. And both are important because one is where death immediately meets life, and the other one is where life, or I mean, death goes to life uh, in just a conversation. The other one is death literally comes to life in the person of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the resurrection and the cross and your blood and your promises. Bless this Bible study, this message. Be exalted and glorified. May your spirit come upon me, this teaching, your people, and anyone that doesn't know you. In your name we pray. Amen. So much can happen in a week, can it? Just this past week you're probably like, wow, it was a blur. We did this, we did that, this happened, this happened. But never in the history of the world has that been more true than the last Passover week that Jesus spent in Jerusalem. I hope you go back and look at last week's message and the video and whole nine yards because we covered a lot. But the Passover week began with rejoicing and praise, didn't it? Jesus was the recipient of that praise. As thousands of Jews came into Judea and also the Jewish pilgrims from around the world, they had heard of Jesus. They had heard of his teachings and his miracles. In the text I read from last week, we saw Jesus enter the temple, and then he looked around, didn't he? He entered the temple, and he looked around. And he would head back to Bethany. It's about a two-mile walk from Jerusalem that night with his disciples. The following morning, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus is walking from Bethany to Jerusalem, he would cause a fig tree to be cursed and die. Remember reading that? That's when that happened. It's a picture of Israel not fulfilling their calling as a nation to bear the fruits of righteousness unto God. That's what it was a picture of. I think it's also a warning to us as believers, too, that we need to bear some fruit. Amen? Amen. It's also a warning to us. The fruit of the Spirit is to flow from our lives. If you've been saved, you should be bearing fruit by now. So it's a warning to us, too. That second day, Jesus comes back into the temple, but he does something that a lot of people don't like. He 
clears out the money changers, kicks them all out. This was the second time he had done this, by the way. He did this to start his ministry, and he did this at the end of his ministry. He was clearing out people because they have been taking advantage of people for their own greed and wealth accumulation. And again, he had done this at the beginning, and now he does this as a second witness against them. Now, over the next couple of days, Jesus would be found in the temple teaching the people. While in the temple, he would be confronted and examined by the chief priests, by the scribes, and all the religious leaders. Each was trying unsuccessfully to find fault in him. Like thousands of the Passover lambs, thousands of Passover lambs being brought to Jerusalem, right? Not with any spot or any blemish. They had to be perfect. And Jesus also had to be perfect, and his witness and his character was perfect. Nobody could find fault in him. During this same week, Jesus would sit on the Mount of Olives. Remember the scene we had? The Mount of Olives sits east of the temple. He's looking down at the temple. He was sitting on the Mount of Olives, and he begins to prophesy that week on the Mount of Olives of the coming destruction of the temple. Amazing thing would happen, by the way, at 40 year, for, the, for the 40 years after Jesus made that prophecy. Did you know in the temple where a red cord was supposed to turn white, and it always did, for the next 40 years, the red cord would not turn white. And then the temple was destroyed. Everything Jesus prophesied, he said, this temple will be gone. Now, he also said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it back up, signifying that he was greater than the temple. And of course, he is. He's the temple we're going to live in. He is heaven. He's the temple. But he spoke there on the Mount of Olives, not only of the destruction of the temple, which is the linchpin that all of his other prophecies are going to come true. So when you hear people say, oh, Jesus is never going to come back, the end of the world, all you have to say is, is there a temple in Jerusalem right now? And when they say, I don't know, say, well, let me show you a picture. That's the Dome of the Rock. There's no temple there. Because that prophecy was fulfilled, you can be assured the rest are coming. He spoke of a time when many would someday use his name. In the Olivet Discourse, he said, there's coming a day when people are going to use my name. Now, this was an amazing statement at the time because no one was using Jesus' name as a religion at that time. He was barely known outside of that part of the world. But he said, a day is coming that all over the world, people will use my name in other religions for themselves, but they won't really be my followers. He, lastly, he outlined the signs of the end of the age and a future judgment that is coming. All of this took place in the Passover week, and that message he gave on the Mount of Olives. It was also during this week that Judas arranged for the betrayal of Jesus with the high priest, Caiaphas. By the time the disciples and Jesus gather in the upper room for the Passover meal, Judas has his plan in place. This is also a reminder that not everyone who is serving in a church is necessarily saved. They might even have false motives. There's pastors out there that are false as the day is long. Don't be fooled by everybody. Judas had a lot of people fooled. But Jesus, even though Judas has this trap set, Jesus isn't trying to avoid the trap being laid for him. Jesus already said, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down. He's not trying to avoid the trap. 
He's walking straight into it of his own will and volition. At the Passover meal, Jesus ignores the betrayal, and he ignores the agony ahead, and he gets down instead. It's so hard when you've got a lot on your heart, but Jesus does this with all his heart. He gets down and starts washing feet. Sometimes the best thing you can do when you've got a lot on your heart is go serve somebody. Stop focusing on yourself and go focus on someone else. And he gets down and he starts washing feet, showing them their calling is to go lower. As his future pastors and his future leaders are in that room. As they would serve God's people, they would need to know this is what Jesus did before dying. He didn't whine. He didn't complain. He served them. And just show you, you can serve God right up until your death day. And Jesus will give you the strength to do it. The very opposite of the elite and the well-connected priesthood in Jerusalem, they had to have everyone bow down to them, and they would pat people on the head, and they would impose their will. In the dark of the night, the forces of darkness, the forces of all hell start to be unleashed in Jerusalem that night. The unseen world, God could see it. The angels could see it, but no one else could see it. All the forces of darkness are convening in Jerusalem. Kind of like that scene, I, I, I picture like that scene in uh, Chronicles of Narnia. Just evil and darkness. You, you and I can't see it, but I believe it was, it was the most intense darkness the world has Even Judas himself is indwelled by Satan. He enters into, into Judas. All the force of darkness moving quickly against Jesus. It's a rapid move. It's like a tsunami coming in. After the Passover, Jesus heads to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's aware of the spiritual warfare all around him. Now, he goes into Gethsemane, which is a garden, olive garden. Those of you who went with us to Israel, you were there. It's just outside the city walls. And it's there Jesus is betrayed, and he's taken into custody. And again, he could have said, I ain't going. Matter of fact, when he spoke, he blew the whole group of them to the ground. That should have been a sign to everybody. <laughs> when you go to talk to someone you're about to arrest and the entire force gets knocked to the ground, that should say, whoa, someone else needs to arrest him. It ain't going to be me. <laughs> Nevertheless, he's taken to the high priest. And in the middle of the night, he has a nighttime meeting, which has never happened there was a nighttime, middle of the night meeting in the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin did not meet in the middle of the night, but this time they broke all their own rules for a kangaroo court. They broke all their own rules. Let's meet secretly. No one knows about it. Let's all meet 70-some men in a room, big room. Caiaphas had a mansion. And there they pronounce him guilty in an absolute sham of any evidence and justice. He's taken early in the morning, very early, by 6 a.m., to Pilate, Roman council, governor of the area, who's neither religious and he's not a compassionate man. Pilate had crucified many people. Pilate was a hard, cruel guy. But he had this connection to Jesus. He could not, he, he could not, he didn't really want to deal with Jesus. Pilate couldn't find any fault in Jesus. Pilate normally would just execute people because they were just giving him a little bit of agitation. And then 
Pilate says, I got an idea. Me and Herod don't get along, but Herod's the governor to the north. I'll send him over to Herod, who's in town for the Passover. But before this, Pilate and Herod didn't even like each other. They were like two billionaire kind of guys with, with egos. So he sends him to Herod, who's in town for the Passover. But Herod can't find any wrongdoing in Jesus either. So he just kind of beats him up a little bit and sends him back. The priests and the religious leaders, meanwhile, they're, they're going through the crowds, the Passover crowds. They're going, urging the people, urging them. Many of these same people, remember, just a few days earlier, had been praising Jesus with palm branches, worshiping Jesus. And they're telling him, you need to demand his crucifixion. You need to demand his crucifixion. If you don't, don't bother coming to the temple. All kinds of threats. They're just demanding, you need to demand this man's crucifixion. He's evil. He's not from God. Pilate attempts, in the middle of all this, Pilate, not the religious leaders, Pilate attempts to defend Jesus, who never does something like this. Jesus, he, he tries to get Jesus to make his own defense, but says, Jesus opened not his what? Mouth. He remained silent as a sheep led to its shearers to fulfill Isaiah 53. Pilate's wife comes. She has a bad dream, and she says, do not, do whatever you do, don't crucify this man. Don't have anything to do with him. She comes and says he's innocent. But Pilate, even though he feels the pressure of his wife's dream, his own guilty conscience, the, all of what's going on, he feels this, he senses that Jesus is some, from somewhere else. Jesus says, I'm from a place you don't know. Someday I'll take your power from you, basically. But Pilate, he craves his political power. Isn't it sad that so many people will trade eternity for their prosperity, their name? They want to be on Time magazine, whatever it is. But Pilate craves his political power. He craves his reputation. He craves the wealth he's accumulated. He craves that he has people under him, and he does not want to give that up. And so he'd rather say, I'm going to say no to this guy, even though my heart's telling me this is the wrong move. So given the outcry of, against Jesus and the political pressure and the pressure from the priests and the scribes, Pilate literally, not just figure, literally washes his hands and says, I've washed my hands of this whole thing, of the whole matter, as if you can do that, by the way. And then he sentences Jesus to scourging, which shreds Jesus back, just shreds his back, followed by the crucifixion. Now, Pilate's cold enough that even though he's convicted, he still says, all right, go ahead. Can you imagine just sentencing someone to be nailed? when you really know they're innocent. But that's how much he wanted to hold on to his power. His stuff mattered more than Jesus' innocence. But this had to happen, didn't it? This had to happen. Jesus came for the cross. The whole reason, the prophecy right there in the temple uh, way back when is it was told to Mary, you're going to be pierced through when he's pierced. John Stott said, there is no Christianity without the cross. Jesus had to go to the cross. Pilate had to do everything he did because Jesus says, I'm going there. This is the reason I came. Now, I put this out on my Facebook uh, page 
And I wanted to show it to you guys as well. And I put it on my page because oftentimes uh, on social media, I'm talking to the unsaved world. And I can't always get them to come to church, but they will read stuff like this. Uh, and so for, for those that are outside and are not going to go to an Easter service today, uh, I put things like this out there just so people know. Uh, if you have people tell you, and there's a lot of young people, I'll tell college-age kids, real educated kids that tell me, uh, Jesus didn't even exist. I'm like, really? Where'd you do your research? TMZ? Um, <laughs> Twitter? Um, I'm sure you haven't studied this, because I've studied all of these uh, claims, and I'm as positive that these speak, these are non-Christian, non-biblical sources that speak of the crucifixion. I'm as positive that these are speaking about Jesus as I am that Mount Vernon is where Washington lived, and Monticello is where Jefferson lived, even though I was not alive with either of those times, okay? The evidence is there. But I just want to put that up to, you, to know that even the known world at that time knew that this took place. And a couple of them referenced that he rose from the dead. Now, they couldn't validate it, but they knew that people were saying that. Of course, that's why Tacitus, the Roman historian, he didn't even have sympathy. He thought that because of their superstitions about the resurrection stuff, that they should be crucified, although he thought Nero went a little too far. But anyway, I just wanted you to see that these things are very clear in history as well in the scriptures. But Pilate, he craves his political power, as I mentioned. And so he goes ahead and moves forward with the cross. And by 9 a.m., Jesus has been nailed to the cross and is now a public spectacle of brutality. Jesus is there, bleeding, just, just body torn to shreds. Brutality, pain, and humility stripped and nailed it's beyond our comprehension. It really is beyond our comprehension. None of us have ever seen things like that. We don't even see the kind of we don't even see the grotesque brutality of parts of the world that exist right now, much less something like this. On either side of him are two violent criminals. They're nailed as well on either side of Jesus. Jesus portrayed as a guilty and vile man in spite of all the good he had done. And they think this man's worthy of death. On the cross, Jesus, while he's on the cross, this starts as soon as he's on the cross, people begin to walk by and spit on him. Mock him. Many passing by. No mercy at all from people. Soldiers gamble for his clothes. His response? He prays the Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Surely, they, and they did not know what they were doing. Pilate didn't know. None of them knew what they were doing. They're out of their minds, for real. During this same time, while experiencing the trillions, and I say trillions, not an exaggeration. You think of all the people. If there's 7 billion people on earth, if they've all committed thousands of sins, you do the math. Trillions of sins of humanity laid on him. The excruciating pain and the humility. And Jesus, in the middle of all this, he has an appointed discussion to have, which we just read. With two men, and time is of the essence for this discussion. You see, both men are near to death. Their souls are literally hanging over the pit of hell, precariously over eternity, because if they slip into eternity where they're at, 
they had the certainty of hell and eternal judgment. Time is of the essence. Jesus has an appointed discussion. But Jesus is present. If Jesus is present, hell can actually go the other direction, can't it? Which means that the forgiveness is present, the power is present, that eternal life is present, and it's available because Jesus is the one who makes it available. But there's an if, and it's a big if. There's a big if here. If you believe. If you're taking notes, we're going to look at just two things. There are two different scenes. One scene is at the cross. The other scene we'll turn to in just a few minutes is at the tomb. But two scenes, and the first one is, if you're taking notes, to make a choice. There's a scene here. It's a real scene. Jesus is in the middle. And here's what we know about Jesus. And here's what we know about these two men. Jesus had committed no crime. He was innocent. His entire life, he had only loved people, taught them the truth of God, presented God the Father. He only had time for people. Jesus made time for people when we constantly say these words, and we need to stop saying it, I don't have time. Jesus made time. Do not tell yourself you're busier than Jesus, or you got more on your plate than God did. We need to stop telling ourselves these kind of excuses and still say, Lord, I'm going to give my life to you so you'll make the time. But Jesus had time for people. He never hurt anyone. He'd only healed thousands of people, fed thousands of people, cast demons out of people. Mary Magdalene, seven demons cast out of her. He wasn't stirring any rebellion. He wasn't calling people to revolt against authorities. He was not saying, hate your leaders. He spoke of forgiveness. He spoke of peace. He spoke of rest. He spoke of life and a future hope. This is this was the ministry of Jesus. Yes, he absolutely warned people because there is a judgment coming and true love warns. I love my daughters enough to warn them of certain things are harmful. I'm not dumb enough to say, you know, I don't want to warn them of anything because that would disturb them. Right? I'm not going to tell my toddler, don't play in the traffic because I don't want to hurt your little esteem, right? (laughs) No, true love warns. Those that Jesus spoke most directly against, he spoke to those that were full of pride, spiritual hypocrisy, misrepresenting God. That's why he cleared the money changers out. They were misrepresenting God. God doesn't want your money. He wants you to be a willing, generous giver, but he's not pounding it out of you. He's not manipulating the scales like they were. Uh, Jesus particularly had disdain for those that were misleading others. When I see Pastor Day getting up in the pulpit today, changing the Word of God, I would not want to be standing where they stand someday if they don't repent of it. The very men that condemned Jesus to his death were the ones that were ignoring the Scriptures. That was the priest and the leaders. Now the criminals, these these two men on either side of Jesus... They weren't innocent, not at all. They were not innocent men. In fact, Luke does not use the word thief. The other gospels use the word thief. You've always heard the two thieves on the cross. It's true. There's no doubt about it. They were, they were thieves. And by the way, if you've ever stolen one thing in your life, you're a thief. We're on that either side of Jesus too, by the way. But Luke uses a different word. He uses the word in the Greek 
evildoer, which he's taking it beyond just thieves. He's saying that these guys weren't just thieves. They were evil in their actions. In other words, they might have done a lot of violence and other things in addition to they had very evil lives. Their whole lives were evil lives. They spent a lifetime of evil. Many scholars believe these thieves, like many others, had killed people or maimed people while robbing. Now, you know that in just having your house robbed, you can lose mental security for you know, all those kind of things. So they had robbed people of a lot of things. They never helped people. They harmed people. They were like a lion crouching for people. They didn't speak peace. They robbed people of peace, and they robbed people of safety. Whatever they knew about God, I'm sure they had heard about God living in that area. This is Jerusalem, mind you. Whatever they knew about God, they had rejected as if there was no God. And I meet a lot of people who every day pull out a dollar bill and it has God's name on it, and they live like there is no God. They're in a country that says, God bless America. They stand up in that, but they have no, they, they live like there's no God at all. They lived, and these men lived like there was no consequences to their sin and crimes. But their sin has finally caught up with them, hasn't it? It's better to die on a cross and meet salvation than die some other nice way and not find the way of salvation. At the outset, according to Matthew and Mark, both men, when they first got nailed, okay, Jesus is nailed to the cross, they're on either side of them. At the beginning, both were reviling Jesus. Both were mocking him. Both were saying, get us out of here. You, you, you're a big shot. you got all these powers. We heard you walked on water. Whatever they were saying, both of them were saying it at first, mocking. Luke actually takes us past that point. But they didn't believe Jesus had any more power at first than they did. By the way, it's interesting that Jesus is put at the center as if he's the worst of the three. That was part of the image there. But he's ultimately there of his will and by the will of God, and he's in the center for this reason, to be available to speak to both of them. Jesus is always available to speak to every person. Here in this room, Jesus is making himself available for you to hear directly from him. But at some point, one of the men begins to have a change of heart. He's observing, and he stops mocking Jesus, and he says... This guy's not wrong. I'm wrong. There came a day when I stopped arguing against God and I fell at the feet of God. How about you? One begins to have a change of heart and a change of thought. And deeper than that, he really starts to see himself as deserving. He even says, he said, why are you, uh, this man has done uh, nothing wrong, but we're receiving the due reward of our deeds. We deserve punishment. We deserve the cross. He's starting to see this. I wonder what caused his mind to shift. I, I could be wrong when I get to heaven. I wonder if it was verse 34, which we didn't read. Look back at verse 34. I've already quoted it twice, where Jesus said in verse 34, this is before this man seems to have a turn. Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Well, I bet you if you heard that from the literal mouth of Jesus, it would have the weight of thousands of pounds. Because you're like, who could say this at this time? Who in the world could think this way? Who could say this? I wonder if that's when everything shifted for this 
one criminal. Many people have seen Jesus perform powerful miracles and still were now saying crucify him. Many had been convinced because they had seen Jesus do these miracles, although some still were unconvinced. But here, Jesus seems powerless, doesn't he? I mean, if you just didn't know anything, you just kind of arrived on the scene, you would think he's powerless. If someone told you, hey, this guy used to walk on water, you'd say, I'm not buying that. This guy raised Lazarus from the dead. Then why wouldn't he raise himself? You would think that. Most anyone would think that. But yet this guy sees power in Jesus' words. He says, I see deep, and he sees a power on display that goes beyond walking on water. Can you see it? He sees so much so that he says, Lord, remember me when you're going to perish. Now he's convinced Jesus is God. You don't ask some, you know, Joe down the street, hey, remember when you take me into the kingdom. You know they can't. But he's convinced now Jesus is who he says he is. He trusts the information that God's provided at that moment. And he begins to ask for mercy. Please remember me. The clock is ticking, and he makes the right choice, doesn't he? A life and death choice, a literal life and death choice, an eternal choice. Dr. Adrian Rogers used to say, if you're wrong about Jesus, it doesn't matter what you're right about. (laughs) That's true, isn't it? so true, but the reverse is true when it comes to making the right choice. All your previous wrongs are reversed. Isn't that great? When you get right about Jesus, then he can fix all the wrong stuff. And Jesus brings us all to a valley of decision. We're all under the sentence of death. One man is convinced, and the other one is unconvinced, refuses to relent. He says, I'll trust myself. By the way, I'm convinced no matter Uh, I'm convinced no matter um, how unconvinced other people are. Are you convinced? You could not, you can't show me any evidence. It's not evidence, really, but you can't show me any arguments that would ever turn me away from Jesus. I'm 100% convinced. doesn't matter what all the naysayers say. I know he's changed my life. And this man on the cross, now he knows, not only that, Jesus says, look, you're going to be with me today. And we aren't going to be here on Calvary. Jesus had had mercy on this man, but you know he had many others on his mind at that moment too. He can have a one-on-one conversation, but he still had billions of other people on his mind. He saves the one, but he also saves the many, and the other half of salvation still has to be completed. Michael Ramsey said, no resurrection, no Christianity. You can't have Christianity with just the cross, and you can't have it with a resurrection. You have to have both together. Death, resurrection, together. Otherwise, as Paul said, our faith is in vain. Let's turn to Matthew. Let's change scenes. Let's skip forward three days. Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 1. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came uh, came to see the tomb And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord had descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of them and became like dead men. The angel answered and said to the women, 
do not be afraid. For I know you seek Jesus, who was what? Crucified. The crucifixion is mentioned immediately by the angels. They know that the crucifixion and the resurrection are always connected as it relates to salvation. That's why the nail prints are still going to be on Jesus when we see him. Amen? The nail prints are there. He's alive, but the nail prints are there. The resurrection and the death go hand in hand. They're two sides of the same coin. He is not here. He is risen. As he said, come see the place where he laid. Again, the angel said he keeps his promises, folks. Go quickly and tell his disciples he had risen from the dead. Indeed, he is going before you into Galilee, and there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring the disciples word. And as they went to tell the disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying one word, rejoice, rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and, they, and there they will see me. If you're taking notes, this second scene, this second point, then many rejoiced. Two had a choice to make. But these had already made the choice when Jesus was in his ministry. They had already chosen to follow him. You know that song, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. They were still following him even though they had no clue, was he even still who they thought he was? And they were still following him. Boy, sometimes that's our faith, isn't it? We're just still following, like, Lord, this doesn't seem to be working. But I'm going to keep following you anyway. I'm going to read anyway. I'm going to pray anyway. I'm going to worship anyway. This does not seem to be working, but I'm going to believe you anyway. Now, it's coming back to the scene, ironically, among all the faithful that all, among all those that remain faithful to Jesus, think about it, the dying thief, nailed, bleeding, gasping for air, he may have had the most peace of anyone there because he got this personal word, today you and me are going to be together. No one else got that word. Isn't that amazing? The dying thief had more peace, I believe, than Mary did, than John did, than James did. He heard Jesus tell him, you and me are going to be together this afternoon. He's been told you'll be in paradise that same day. Now, he gets to rejoice a little early, if you will, because the others wait three days for this. Does that make sense? He's the first one to get to rejoice, as best we can tell. In some respects, he was the first fruits of the rejoicing. He never would go on to, the thief, by the way, would never go on to serve, never would win a person to Christ. He was that 23rd hour person that comes in with nothing to offer, just ask for mercy, which is proof to us that anyone can be saved. You see, everyone else was going to have to wait a few days, though, to rejoice, weren't they? Three days to be exact. Even though Jesus said he would rise in three days, it appeared everyone had forgotten this. Or maybe they thought they misunderstood what Jesus had said. But at any rate, no one really expected him to see him alive. No one thought he'd be alive. Even the mighty disciples, when they finally told, they're like, you're lying, ladies. Right? No men of faith, right? See, once you've seen a crucifixion, the death and brutality is burned into your mind. There's no way anyone can come back from this. Not like someone who was barely just kind of passed out on the operating table. This is burned into their heads. But as Jesus has taken already one man with him 
to rejoice in paradise, he was coming back on this morning to cause many to rejoice. Speaking of the resurrection, C.S. Lewis said, he said this, if the thing happened, it was the central event in the history of the earth. Well, it did happen. And it is the central event, right? The thief had to believe in Jesus. Those that came to the tomb had to believe in Jesus. And we have to believe in Jesus and we have to believe in the resurrection. There's people that don't believe in the resurrection, they cannot be saved. You must believe everything Jesus has said. Amen? You can't say, why? Well, I believe this, but I don't believe this. Thomas Jefferson cutting pieces piece out of his Bible. You can't cut anything out of the Bible. God wants to cut it away from us, the sin in us. We don't cut things out of the Bible. We want God to come in and cut out of here. All the other miracles of, of Jesus were amazing. But this one was stunning and jaw-dropping, wasn't it? And more than jaw-dropping, it was knee-dropping. Look what it's in verse 9. And when they... Saw Jesus, he said, rejoice, so they came and held him by the feet. They got really low, really fast. Boy, this is, a, this is a worship, it's a joy, it's a rejoicing, it's a humbling all in the same breath. If we as Christians cannot genuinely and passionately worship Jesus, have we really understood the crucifixion? And do we really have the wonder of the resurrection if we can't passionately worship Jesus as they did? Notice the instructions of Jesus. His instruction, I want you to rejoice. That's a good word, isn't it? Jesus says, I don't want you to be bummed out as believers. I want you to rejoice. Paul would go on to write it this way. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. rejoice. Paul said, good days, bad days, in between days, rejoice through them all. Because Jesus is risen. Their response is to worship and rejoice. Notice his next instructions. He says, don't be afraid, and I want you to go and tell. Afraid could be for us delayed, laziness, fear, distraction, anything that keeps us from doing what Jesus called us to do. He says, go forward. The hymn says, he lives, we serve a living Savior, right? Not we observe from a distance. We serve a risen Savior, a living Savior. He's alive, that we would now be alive for him. And what he revealed at the cross, the empty tomb, can't be ignored. I want to come to a close here and wrap this up, but I just want to remind you of a couple of things here that we've looked at. We have a choice to make, don't we? I'm already saved. I don't know about you. I, most of you are probably, I'm already saved. I made that choice in June 1995. But do you know daily I make a choice to follow Jesus? Daily I make a choice to rejoice. Daily I make a choice to serve Christ. And to make that choice to live for him and to rejoice, because a lot of days I sometimes don't feel like rejoicing. Am I alone here? Sometimes I just don't feel like rejoicing. God never said, and when you feel like it. You will, if you can find the verse, bring it to me. If you can find the verse, anyone in the Bible says, when you feel like it. God's not really big on your feelings. He's big on your response to his word. And these are the four things that we looked at this morning. We have to believe what God said. Amen? The thief on the cross believed. That's why you say The other thief, simple, simple he did not believe. He, 
Because Jesus didn't get off the cross. He says, if you don't get off the cross, I'm not going to believe in you. The other guy says, because you're still on the cross, I do believe. We have to receive it. We have to receive salvation. We have to receive faith. But we have to exercise it, too. We then have to choose to rejoice daily, not just on Easter Sunday, Resurrection Day. Rejoice on Monday. You could have a rough Monday tomorrow. I hate to tell you that. You could. Rejoice anyway. Jesus is risen. And lastly, go tell other people because they need to know this. Amen? Amen? He's alive. He wants us to live it out. We're going to close. I'm going to have the worship team come up. But the thing is this. We both, I mean, all of us, we're like the thieves on the cross. We all had this decision to make. Do I believe Jesus? Or am I going to believe myself? And even after salvation, if you're saved, did some of you, some of you have not been serving Christ with your life. If you were honest with yourself, you say, I've had a choice for weeks to go all in for Jesus or just kind of go through the motions. And I've just kind of gone through the motions. So there's a choice to make. Are you going to live for Christ? You know what's awesome about all the apostles? After the resurrection they become an indomitable force. They were, they were already saved prior to that. Here's what I, my prayer for you today, that after this Easter Sunday, after this Resurrection Sunday, you don't go back to the lukewarmness of maybe the last several weeks, months, or even years. They became unstoppable to the point they would actually be, all of them were martyred. They couldn't care less because they're like, we're going to see Jesus. And I would love to see us be that way. If we did, we would someday see a service at 10 times the size because we'd be on fire for the Lord. The resurrection made them say, we're all in from now on. Isn't that great? There was no turning back after that because they knew Jesus had won. But if you're not convinced he won, if you're still convinced that your career is going to make you happier than Jesus, then you're going to still keep choosing your career. I'm not telling you to quit your job. I'm talking about loving it more than Jesus. Don't quit your job tomorrow, unless Jesus tells you to, but then you could. But, uh, but you follow me? You'll think your marriage is going to bring you peace when it's not. Jesus brings you peace. Then your marriage will get great after that. But Jesus, all of these other things, you have to make the choice to believe him first. Amen? I want us to bow our heads for a moment, and Tuan can play quietly. I want to just speak to those of you that maybe you're visiting, and if you're visiting, we're glad to have you. If you've never made the choice to say, Jesus, I believe in you. Please cleanse me like you cleansed that thief on the cross. He loves you as much as he loved those two thieves. Do you know it broke Jesus' heart that the other one said no thanks? That probably was one of the hardest things on him on the cross is that the other thief said, I don't believe you. Don't you hate it when people don't believe you when you're telling the truth? Have you ever told someone the truth and they said, I don't believe you? just really annoys you, doesn't it? You know you're telling the truth. Jesus not only is telling the truth, he is the truth. 